This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hey everyone, welcome to the Adopted Mom Podcast. This is season two, episode 12. And today... I got to sit down with two members of the DCFS adoption specialist team. Now, when you think DCFS, usually you're thinking foster care, and the answer is kind of. So a lot of people don't realize that you can do adopt only from foster care, and that's what we did. That's how we adopted both of our sons, and it was through the awesome this awesome specialist team through DHS. And Richie, who is the department head of the adoption unit in our area one of Arkansas, DHS, and then Margot is just amazing. And so I had to have them both on the podcast. And so they're both going to talk a little bit about their story of how they got into this field and then what keeps them going and a little bit of some practical tips on how how you can get into this this form of adoption. So let's jump right into it. My interview with Richie and Margot. Hello, Margo and Richie. How are you guys doing? Hey, doing good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, doing well. Absolutely. So, okay, let's just jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your families and what you do for, spoiler alert, DCFS? Uh, so, um, I'm married. I've been married for five years. Uh, don't have any children. Um, and I'm the adoption supervisor uh, for Area 1, which is uh, consists of four counties in Northwest Arkansas. Awesome. Um, I'm Margo. I have been in some way involved with DCFS since 2012. Um, I was an intern for the department whenever I was getting my uh, bachelor's in social work. Um, then I've been a uh, caseworker. Um, I was a resource worker for several years, and now I am in the adoption unit, um, helping out the adoption unit. Um, my family, um, so I'm not married and I don't have any kids, but I have a, I think it's a special role. I get to be a foster sister. Um, my mom is a foster parent, and so um, we have... I have an older sister and a little brother, um, biologically related to me, but I have lots of brothers and sisters through DCFS. That's so awesome. And I, Richie, you have, you're not a foster parent, right? I think. Or maybe no, we're, we're not allowed to be foster parents. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I didn't know that actually. We can be open adoptive parents, gotcha. um, but we are, we're not allowed to foster. And you know what? Now that I think of it, isn't it true that you guys have to adopt from out of your area? it's recommended yes okay that's so interesting okay so what about like what how you got here so margo you got into that a little bit with your with how you interned with the department and richie were you around back then uh i started at the end of with dcfs at the end of 2012 okay and i was um a foster care worker for about a year and then uh transitioned to be an adoption specialist and did that uh for four years and then um, just coming up on about a year of being the supervisor. Okay. So how long have you two worked together? Well, when I started, like when I became employed with the department after I graduated, I got his old foster care caseload. 
So we kind of uh, just missed each other with that um, unit. And then I switched to the adoption unit back um, just last year in 2017. Okay. And I remember because you were actually our resource worker for like – a second. Yeah. We were all, we were like on the home stretch of our adoption and Margo became our resource worker. So, um, but you're an adoption specialist now, which is so much fun. So are you technically her boss then? I am. What? She's your favorite employee, right? Uh, no comment on that one. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. He's worried the others are listening. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love it. Okay. So tell us about how you got here. What, what drove you to want to do this? We'll, we can start with you, Richie. Um, so when I was in high school, I actually uh, wanted to adopt, um, not then, but when I got older. And so a kind of adoption's always been, you know, uh, on my heart to do. Um, funny thing was when I was in grad school, um, I, I was going for counseling and I did not want to work with kids because um, I enjoyed kids so much. And uh, and when I was there, um, one of the things that we had to do was we had to, for our practicum, um, which is where we do counseling with real clients and stuff, and I wasn't getting anyone. And kind of just selfishly, um, I got this case of these three kids in just kind of a, a horrific situation that they were going through. And... Um, they offered it to me and, you know, I just said yes, cause I needed hours. Mm-hmm. And then bam, right after that, I get another case, um, with another little girl. And, uh, and so I kind of started wondering if that was the direction that I was being pulled into. And, um, then kind of right after that, I, I get this job, but it actually worked with my grad school where, um, I was kind of a school counselor within the Springdale school districts and I was working with, troubled youth. Um, and so it just kind of pushed me in that role and I, and I loved it. I loved working with the youth. And, um, right after that, I, I did that for about two years and I decided to apply to with DCFS and, um, and then, you know, I've already told you, it just kind of led me to, to being in adoptions and I love it. I love being in adoptions. I love, um, reuniting, families as in the sense of for kids, um, giving them the chance to restore what family means. Yeah. Um, and then also for just families in general, like the adoptive parents, um, some of the best stories are of families that couldn't have kids and, and had tried and for the longest time and, um, you know, became an, an open adoptive home and even then still waited three, maybe three years because they, you know, were pretty specific in the um, child that they wanted and being able to give them that and just kind of, you know, I guess we're playing matchmaker, but um, I don't know. And then they get pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) It always happens. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of what pushed me this way. um, And I, and I love it. That's awesome. That's so fun. So you had, not intentionally, like you were not intending to go this way at all. And now you're like the boss kind of. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So what about you, Margo? Um, so people kind of laugh at me when I tell them this just because I don't have a very intimidating demeanor, um, I guess. <laughs> but whenever I was getting my um, 
my degree in social work, I wanted to work in the um, prison system. Wow. And so when I was applying for my internship, I really, really wanted the internship at um, the women's prison. I didn't end up getting it. I ended up getting um, an internship with DCFS. And I was kind of... I was bummed that I didn't get the internship with the prison system, but I was excited about working with DHS because you get to work um, with so many different service providers through DHS, so it was a good experience. Um, and then I, you know, when doing that internship, I just loved it. It was, it just made me so happy to be able to work with kids, to work with families, um, and then, so that's why I came to work for the department after graduating, um, but for the last, I mean, honestly, probably since I was a caseworker back in 2013, Richie and I have talked about, like, well, what if I came to adoptions? What if I was in the adoption unit? Um, because adoption is something, I know we talked about this, um, back at the Project Zero event, but adoption is something that throughout my whole life has always just been celebrated mm -hmm. and very, like, it's been the normal for my family because both my mom and my dad were adopted and it made no impact on, you know, how I was related to my grandparents or anything, you know, my um, extended family. Like, it made absolutely no impact that we weren't biologically related. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have always been, like, looking forward to working for the adoption unit with DCFS because I think that um, I can relate to children and relate to families who... Um, who want to go or who want to have that that different family dynamic that's not, you know, the traditional biological family, but it is just as much of a family and it's so celebrated and it's so special um, through adoption. So I love being in the adoption unit because now I get to kind of play a part in bringing families together through adoption, like how my family was brought together through adoption. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So how many like forever days do you guys get to go to in a year? You probably get to go to a lot more than me. Back when I was a resource worker, it was really special whenever families would invite us to um, their adoptions and to like their, I have this one little girl, you, ha you had her on your show, um, Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was her caseworker and um and I always get, like, a notification on, like, my Facebook whenever it's been, like, a year since her, we call it her adoptiversary. But, yeah. um, so just even stuff like that, it's it's always really awesome whenever families include you in um, the adoption celebrations of their family. But I haven't been to one in a while. What about you? Um, I guess as the supervisor, you might not. Yeah, I don't, I don't have really cases anymore. Um, I, I will say that just last month, about actually right at about a month ago, um, I did an adoption for a little girl. Uh, well, she's a teenager now. And, it, and this one was pretty cool because it came full circle. I was her caseworker when they first came into foster care. Um, and, you know, through just a lot of trauma that she had, um, it took her five years to get adopted. Wow. And, um, and so she's had multiple caseworkers. Um, even a couple adoption specialists. And then when it came back, we, we ended up losing one of our adoption specialists. And so I kind of took over the case again. And this was before I became the supervisor. And, um, but then I held on to it. And, 
um, was able to finalize that adoption. And so, uh, that was for me, that was pretty cool to be yeah. able to, to be that, you know, see that turmoil on the front end and then see the restoration on the back end of it. Gosh, that's so rewarding. I yeah. bet. So do you miss it having just the, the cases like what Margot does now? Yes. Yes. It's, <laughs> um, I get pulled into a lot of meetings now, um, phone conferences and stuff like that. And, um, don't get to do the home visits where you get to see the kids as much, um, and develop that relationship. And that's kind of what I, I missed that part of it. I, I will brag about Margot just a little bit because, um, her not having a caseload, um, has really allowed us to utilize her in different ways. One, you know, her expertise in resource, um, when we have situations where we have relative custody adoptions. And so she's able to assist us in trying to get those families licensed. But really, um, she is, kind of been our go-to person with a, a girl that is in a residential facility right now. Um, her goal is adoption. Um, but Margo has been the one that's been able to, on a weekly basis, take her out on passes. Wow. Um, took her to the movies last yeah. week. <coughs> and, um, so been able to do a lot of those things for this girl and I think the coolest part is been able to develop a relationship with her to where someone that she can trust, someone that, um, you know, she can count on that's going to be there on a weekly basis, uh, and take her to do things. Uh, we've got a, a kind of a sort of a fun event for our teens this Saturday where it's a basketball game, a Razorback basketball game. And, um, on the way up here, I asked Margo if she'd be the one to pick her up and, take her to the game and drop her off because they just have been able to develop that relationship. I think that that's um, something that is very much needed with a lot of our teens, a lot of our teens that are in residential facilities. They need someone that they can count on. Yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what I was going to uh, say back to you about that um, is that I think that that relationship with kids in um, who are currently waiting to be adopted is something that is good for um, adoptive parents to know that the kids are longing for or someone who may be considering adopting um, to maybe they didn't realize that um, that there are children who are older who can verbalize that they want a family and that they're longing for a you know a human connection with somebody yeah. So while we're talking about teens, obviously, I'm I'm assuming that those are your hardest to place, right, for adoption. Absolutely. Typically, yeah. So let's talk about that. Why? First of all, why do you think that is? Um, and obviously, I mean, the obvious answer is just that they have a lot of trauma. But I mean, you guys have a really unique uh, perception of this and that you get to work with them. You get to know them. You are actively searching for the right family for them. So why do you think that it's hard on the side of on their side and on the family side? And how is that? I mean, I'm sure that that's also the most rewarding when you get to go to those adoptions or just be a part of them. Definitely. So um, tell us a little bit about that. I think that well, I think that one is that people just maybe don't really realize that there are older youth who are in the foster care system who who do want a family and who do want to be adopted. Because um, I think that typically when our minds, when we automatically think of adoption, we think of, you know, adoption in the traditional sense of adopting, an, you know, a newborn or an infant. Right. Um, but I, uh, 
I really love that you're doing this podcast because I think that, you know, not to get too personal with you about stuff, but I think that y'all's experience of having adopted um, an older youth as well kind of helps spread that message that there are um, that there are older youth who, like I said, who who long for a family and who want to be part of a family. But I think that a misconception of that maybe deters people from adopting an older youth is that that they think that they're not going to get as much time mm-hmm. having that having that person be their child. But I think that it's important to remember that when a child is your child, they are your child for their entire life. And even if, you know, even if you adopt a youth who is 17 years old, you're still their parent for the rest of their life. Um, and so I think that that maybe people just don't, I think that maybe people are intimidated to adopt an older youth because they don't think that they are going to get to play that parent role that they, that they mm-hmm. want to play. But that's definitely not the case. Yeah. Well, and maybe you guys could talk about it because, you know, this is something that we didn't even know going into this, that especially with teens, you know, parent is not going to look the same way for those teens as it does for younger kids. And that's okay. And that's something that I think that there's a lot of a lot of fear on adoptive parents parts. And they're like, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to nurture them. I'm not going to, you know, have that bond with them. And I think that removing that stigma and saying, that's okay. You know, you, you can still be a home base for them. You can still, you know, you will legally be their parent, but your relationship can just be what it is. And it can take a, an organic nature. And does that make sense? Definitely kind of figuring it out together. It doesn't have to look like you're my son and I'm your parent and it's going to look just like all the other stories you hear about, you know? Right. I, I say this in a way that comes from, a point of love, I hope. I, I don't want it to come across as as rude or mean, but um, I think families want to go into adoption. They say that they want to adopt, which is totally just fine. Um, but then adoption, once you get to that point, it's not about you as the parent. Mm-hmm. It's about the commitment that you make to a child lifelong. Um and, and I think that that's the biggest thing. That's the, that's the mind shift that needs to happen is, is when you adopt, it's not about, um, how it makes you feel or because if that's the case, then yeah, I mean, you need to look at younger kids. But if you have the mindset that, man, I can give a child a home and whether it be a younger kid or a teen, I can give that child a home. I can give it, Everything that it needs, uh, basic needs, you know, a roof, food, um, I can give it trust. Um, now the child may not trust you for a while and that's just part of their trauma that they've dealt with. Mm-hmm. But being able to, to give them their basic needs and allow them to have the opportunity to flourish is, is what's vital. Um, and I feel like sometimes families miss that mm-hmm. and that's why they are scared to adopt teenagers. They want that for themselves. They want that connection. They want that. I'm your mom. I'm your dad versus, you know what? I am your mom and your dad legally, but if you don't call me mom and you don't call me dad, you know, I may just be Richie to you and that's okay. Yeah. You know, that, that is okay because I'm giving that child at least a fighting chance. 
in yeah. life. Well, and that's, I mean, I think that on the episode with Amy Butler, we talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that was one of the big things. And and when I first heard that, it gave me so much grace as an adoptive mom, because like you said, I mean, Clark has never called me mom. And that's okay. I have never felt, you know, like I was going without in that sense. Um, That was always okay. And hearing that from Amy, just that that is love, providing those basic needs and giving him that chance, you know, giving him food and shelter and all of those things that is showing him love, even though you know, having other kids and and knowing what that love feels like versus what, you know, the love for Clark feels like having someone tell me they're both okay was so grace giving to me. And it made it, it completely validated our decision to adopt teens. And so that's, that's always what I tell people too, is, you know, you should definitely do it and give yourself some grace while you're at it. Absolutely. I think that when people are, and you kind of touched on this, Richie, I think that when people are Um, looking to adopt, if you're looking to adopt from the foster care system, it's really important that you, that you recognize that you're doing this for the child. You're not really doing this for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, if you've always wanted to be a mom or you've always wanted to be a dad and that's your motivating factor for adopting from foster care, then that's, then that's totally okay. But you really need to consider the fact that it's not about what this child is going to fulfill in you. It's what you can fulfill for that child. And you're going to get rewarded from that. But that's not what you need to be expecting um, from the adoption. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that and that's something I had to learn early on, too. So I think that's a good uh, that's a good lesson to tell people up front is just, you know, this is not about you. And I think that while that's humbling, it was so necessary in my case. Um, but I think that you provided an excellent transition. So why don't you guys kind of walk us through the process of adopting through foster care? And I say this with the caveat, you know, when we were in our training, we were taught, you know, saying foster to adopt is not really PC anymore, understandably so, because when you enter the system as a foster parent, you know, your, your goal is reunification. These kids, you want these kids to go back to their families. And so, but, but what we're talking about today is to is adoption, excuse me. And you can adopt just like we did. You can open as an adopt only home. Mm-hmm. So what would you, what would you say is the best way to describe that instead of saying foster to adopt? Um, the term. Well, oh, go ahead. Whenever I, I talk to groups like training groups, I say it's kind of a dual track system. Mm-hmm. You've got, adoption and you've got foster, right? And um if you open up as foster, then you need to be committed 110% to reunification. I am under the belief that these children need to be with their families. Mm-hmm. Um their biological families. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. Um and hopefully DHS, you know, we are providing the right services to make that happen. Um but you have to have that mindset that it's reunification, reunification, reunification until TPR actually occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that point, if you, you know, have the opportunity to uh, adopt the child that's in your home, then it transitions to adoption. But it's a dual track because in the state of Arkansas, we do have in the foster system, you're goal for that child is reunification, but you do have a concurrent goal of adoption, Mm -hmm. but reunification is first. 
Um, and so you get that opportunity to adopt after TPR, then yeah, we will go down that track. TPR but being termination. Of termination parental of parental rights. Sorry. Um, but that is how that process works. Um, but it is a, instead of foster to adopt, because to me that gives the mindset of my end game is adoption. So I'm going to do everything I can to try to get that adoption versus I'll tell you this. Um, we had a family and I kind of talked about this when we had that project zero, um, banquet thing is we had a family who wanted a baby, wanted a baby for the longest time. They opened up, they couldn't have kids. Um, they wanted a baby and they were open for like four years and every baby that came in their home, they supported reunification and the child went back home, which is kind of crazy because that doesn't happen very much. Like it doesn't happen that every child that you've had in your home right. would go back to reunification. And so they, they came to me, they talked to me, um, and I said, look, we, we don't really have babies in adoption unless it's a foster parent adoption. Right. Um, and I talked to them about maybe the sibling group. It was, uh, at the time, like, a 11 or 10, maybe a, a 12 and 11 year old type of thing. And, um, they thought about it. We did disclosure. We, I mean, you know, kids got placed and the family, the family as a whole is thriving. They're doing great. And it was, it was awesome just to see them change their mindset of what they wanted as a family and getting the right kids in the home. And they're doing, you know, they're doing great. And I, I love seeing that. I love seeing families that just say, you know what? It's not about me adopting a baby, but it's about me giving, um, life to these two kids because they have had failed pre-adoptive placements in the past. Wow. You know, they were in the foster care system for like seven years. And so just being able to, to give that to them, um, through that family, I think is, is fantastic. And I, I will preach that all the time because that family got it. That family understood. Yeah. And I think, I think we see that a lot. Um, or not a lot, but I think that we see that sometimes, um, with our foster parents and our adopt only parents, both, um, I think with both of them, we see that they come into this wanting a younger child, but then once the reality of the needs of, you know, older youth, six and older, um, are brought to their attention, then I think that. It's it's really beautiful whenever there's kind of that mindset change and then they realize, you know, I didn't consider that before, but I I can give a home to a 14-year-old or to a 9-year-old or whatever, you know, that maybe wasn't their typical or sorry, that wasn't their initial, you know, choice or age range right. or whatever. Um I think that's really cool when that happens. Um I think were you asking about like what the terminology is? Yeah, I was just saying, you know, what's the best thing to say? Because instead of saying foster to adopt, okay. but if you are, I think that a lot of people go into this not knowing that you can open as an adopt only home. That yeah. You don't, and that's, I mean, we've never been an open foster home. Um, and we'll get into this in a minute, even though the training is the same, you know, so we could switch over. I think it's just like a button you guys click, basically, from what I hear, not to simplify your jobs or anything. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think we were told it was concurrent planning was, was the better term. Um, but 
I, I mostly, I wanted you guys to talk about how, you know, it's okay to, to open as an adopt only home. Yeah. It's okay to know what your goals are for your family. So in the resource, you know, the terminology that I always used with my families was an adopt only home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's statewide that they use that term. They may call it an adoptive home or, you know, adoptive services or something like that. I don't know. Um, but up in up in area one on you know from my homes that were that came into this knowing that their goal was to adopt which there's definitely something admirable to me about um foster parents who want to foster but then um on the other hand about adoptive parents who they're they don't want to try to play the system and you know sabotage reunification like sometimes happens you know so I, I admire an adoptive family who knows what they want to do they know that they are getting into this because they want to provide a forever home to a child who has been in the foster care system um and so yeah i'm i'm glad that you are somebody who has had um a broad range of experiences with adopting um through foster through the foster care system um because i think that it I think you're totally right that people don't realize that you don't have to foster in order to adopt from the foster care system because that's the number, I mean, the number one thing whenever people find out that I work for the foster care system, oh, I can never do that. Yeah. I'll get too attached. Well, if you want to adopt, then here you go. Like, you can get attached. They're yours forever if you, you know, go through that route with the um, with the adopt-only services. So, um, so the technical term is actually non-foster resource home non-foster resource home that wow. that is the technical it's term. Gonna stick that on my resume yeah, yeah. <laughs> for real oh that's awesome so okay so say i i mean this is obviously not a hypothetical but say i am a family and we want to adopt we want to open as an adopt only home what does that process look like from the beginning of to end, I'll let you guys choose who gets to answer that question. So I'll let Margo go first because she's done resource and then I'll take over as the next step. Sounds good. So if you are a family and you want to adopt from the foster care system, then you go on your computer and go to www.fosterarkansas.org and you fill out the online inquiry. Um, then that is going to kickstart your application process from there your application process is virtually the same as um someone who is opening as a home to foster children um like you had said before the training is the same type of training it's you know 30 hours of pride training the home study is um it's the safe um home study the nationally recognized home study for fostering and adoption a lot of agencies use the safe home study so it's the same um same home study just the focus is going to be more toward what your adoptive preferences are as opposed to your foster preferences but virtually the process is the same um and while you're i don't mean to interrupt but you you had said arkansas and i wanted to note that pretty much uh, across the states it's going to look pretty similar i mean there's going to be a few variances if, if you're in you know texas opening as a foster home it might be a little bit different but it's going to look pretty similar right right you're so each state agency or county agency however that state's you know child welfare system works um has slightly different um licensing criteria and you know 
lengths of training and things of that nature. But generally speaking, the process is um, in place to uh, ensure the safety and welfare of children placed into your home and then to ensure that the family is prepared to bring a child into their home who has experienced trauma and, you know, experienced some sort of child maltreatment or um, been a part of the child welfare system for whatever reason. Um, so the process, so I'm one of like the, I feel like another thing that you hear really often is that the process takes way too long. And I'm not saying that people should, or the government agencies should be dragging their feet to try to, um, make the process take longer or take an unnecessary amount of time. But I think that, Something that families don't always consider while they're in the application process is that just because you don't see something happening doesn't mean that there aren't things happening, Mm -hmm. um, like regarding your application. And even if you feel like DHS is sitting on your application, then there's an opportunity for you and your family to prepare yourselves even better for a child to come into your home so you know there's so much stuff that you can do while you're in the application process while you're waiting that maybe dhs isn't requiring you to do but that's going to benefit you your family and the children that you bring into your home so some things like that like i don't i i encourage my families while they're waiting because i know that it's frustrating and i know that they're ready to open and i love that people are so eager to get open because more homes for kids that's you know that's exactly what we want right um but while you're waiting to get open um you know you can read different books on foster parent or you know on adopting from the foster care system um you can listen to podcasts you know from other adoptive moms you can attend support groups i mean adoptive moms are not going to you know, kick you out of your support or out of their support group if you haven't adopted yet, you know, if you're looking into the journey. But there's just so many things that you can do to prepare yourself and to prepare your home. I mean, everything from stocking up on clothing, toiletries, um, things of that nature, preparing your bio kids for the arrival of new children into the home. I think that that is a process that's oftentimes overlooked during, you know, the excitement of opening your home and getting licensed and getting everything ready is that foster families and adoptive families don't take take into consideration how the process is going to affect the children in their home. Because if you bring a child into your home who has experienced some sort of trauma, then your child the cho- the children that you already have in your home are going to likely be exposed to hearing about certain types of abuse and neglect that your child might not be fully prepared to comprehend if you didn't really um explain to them what the foster care system was right um that's a good point and so i think that um during the process I think that during the process, I can see that it's frustrating when you don't think that something's happening, but with, you know, regarding moving your application along, but I think that that there's 
you can really use that time to your benefit in order to prepare your home and to prepare your family. And you can you know, pray for that child that you're waiting for. You don't have to pray for them by name. You might not know who they are yet. Um, but there's so many things spiritually and mentally for yourself and emotionally for yourself um, and you know physically for your home that you can be doing that DHS isn't going to require you to do, but it's going to make that transition for that child into your home so much easier for you and your family and that child. Yeah, no, that's an awesome point. And, and I've heard that I've heard something similar from families that adopt internationally. You know, they have that that long waiting gap and people encourage them to to find something to do to sell T-shirts or, you know, something to help their adoption along just to take up that space in your mind. So you're not getting anxious. So I love that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that weight is at best similar to a private or international adoption. So it's not it's not out of the norm to wait. Um, and I think that's important for people to remember. Hey guys, we'll get back to my interview with Richie and Margot in just a second. But I wanted to take a minute and remind you about our amazing sponsor right now, which is a book called Those Three Words by Christine Bauer. It's her memoir about being a birth mom and those three words being you are pregnant. It's such an amazing read and you can find it now. It's out and available woohoo, on Amazon. If you just go to Amazon and search those three words, or I link directly to it in my show notes at the adoptivemompodcast.com, you're definitely going to want to check this out. It's a great read. So that being said, let's get back to the show. So Richie, once once you get to the part where, you know, your home is open as an adopt-only home, what happens then? So say you're, you're waiting, you're waiting. What can people do instead of just sitting there? Right. So... Um, we, DCFS has a partnership with Project Zero, um, and they're, uh, an agency that just really comes alongside of us and, um, will do kind of what we call matching events. Um, and they organize it, which is great because we don't have a lot of the time to try to organize these type of events, but, um, they do like a Disney extravaganza, um, around Christmas time, they have the Candyland Christmas. Um, there's the, um, just a, a multitude of different events that they do throughout the year. And we call them matching events because, um, the adoption specialist will bring the, the waiting kids. And by waiting, what I mean is they had, um, the parental rights terminated. Um, and so they're waiting. We will bring those kids to this event. And then, um, any family that is an adoptive family that is actually open, um, will be there. And what we do is we, um, it's, it's not set up like a, a pet shop because that's kind of the mentality that it kind of comes across, <laughs> but we do these fun events so that the kids really don't know what's going on. Um, like the Disney extravaganza, it's just, the kids are running around crazy doing all ton, like tons of different just activities and different things. And, um, our families are there to just kind of chaperone, interact with them, do different things like that. And so, um, that's a big one that the families can really participate in. Um, other than that, kind of the, the other processes that we have is where the adoption specialist will do what we call a matching list. And so we, we put in this computer system, um, the behavioral characteristics of the child, medical conditions, things like that. And then it will cross reference with, um, non 
foster resource homes. Uh, if we're going to be technical, and uh, but it only if you were my resource yeah. home. <laughs> um, but it will it will cross reference with what their preferences are, and then it gives the adoption specialist a list um, of names and and phone numbers, and really that's kind of it. And so we will call through those and try to see if you know it doesn't tell us if a family is is already adopted, if they're in the process, or what um it just kind of spits out a list for us and so it may be 10 families it may be uh, 150 families it just depends on the characteristics and ages and preferences that the family wants and if it matches up with the child and so we will call through that list and try to find the most appropriate best fit family for um a child and so that's kind of not really something that the families can do um, you know, they can't participate in that. One of the things that I tell families is to, to email me, um, maybe about once a month and just, you know, cause we get kids that come across our desk and, uh, you know, I can't remember every family that we have. Um, but if I get an email about once a month from them and just says, Hey, this is who we are. Uh, this is kind of what we're looking for. Um, this is what our, our, makeup of our family is, then it kind of helps me because when I'm staffing, when I'm supervising uh, my staff, I will be like, okay, wait a minute, this kid might fit in this family. Or tell us what staffing is. Um, so once, once a week, I have supervision with my staff and we go over cases. And so um, not every single case, we break it up, uh, accordingly throughout the month. And so, but once a month we are staffing, we are supervising each and every case. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I can be like, okay, so, you know, this family wants a sibling group of three, all, you know, over the age of six, let's say. And, you know, I may have a, uh, employee that just got a case and they're talking to me about it. I'm like, hold on, this family I just remembered getting an email from them yesterday and I can maybe try to match them up. Great. You know, and I can tell that ad- adoption specialist to call that family. That's so and, awesome. And that's what I was wondering. I mean, just, I knew that, um, I knew that we had talked about staffing before and you can have staffing like what you're talking about. And then there's staffing for each kid where, you know, you have counselors and right. foster parents and whoever else. So, um, thank yeah, you. I'm trying to change that. I'm calling it supervision now because that's what I'm doing. I'm supervising, uh, my adoption specialist and seeing, making sure that we are having active efforts in every case and trying to find an adoptive family. That's so cool. I mean, just that everyone's working together for one, one cause, which is finding a family for these kids. Absolutely. That's so great. So I think I interrupted you there, but you were talking about the process. And so when, when you're matching these kids, you know, they can also look at the heart gallery, um, either through project zero or it's actually all run by project zero now. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I so we just have about. one heart gallery and it's through project zero. Okay. And if you're in another state, I think that they probably have these types of things in other states as well. Right. Where, um, um through, the, through the DCFS. Yes. They, they should. I think, I think each state has some type of connection website type of thing or organization that they're, that they work with. Right. And a lot of times you can reach out to adoption specialists individually that way and then yep. they can check on your family. So there are, there are ways that we can actively be looking at these kids and, and be, be trying to, um, 
just work the uh what am i trying to say work the situation from our end too um, absolutely yeah can i say something about um about that yeah so a lot of the times we have families who see a picture of a child on the Project Zero page or, you know, at, at a heart gallery event where Project Zero has the posters up of the children um, who are currently waiting for an adoptive home. Um, sometimes when a family wants to inquire about a child that they see on the heart gallery, they do end up getting that child placed in their home and they ended up adopting that child. Oftentimes, what I've seen happen is a family who had maybe not considered um, adoption. They maybe, you know, maybe someone shared a Facebook post about a waiting kid or they were at a church event and they saw the heart gallery there or just different ways that you can be exposed to um, the Project Zero um, heart gallery. Um, what they what what I've seen end up happening is a family will be brought into the adopting process through foster care um, through the they'll be brought let me start over what I've seen happen a lot of the times is families who maybe hadn't considered adopting from foster care um, prior to seeing that child's picture. Um, that that child's picture draws them into the process, mm-hmm. but that child maybe gets placed with another family, or um, you know they end up getting adopted by another family, um, and so that family, that initial family, is really upset that they didn't get to adopt the child that they, you know, originally sought after. But what I've seen happen so many times is that child helped raise awareness for the the magnitude of the number of children who are waiting in foster care and so that got that family to apply that got that family to open up as an adoptive home or a non-foster resource family home (laughs) and um that ended up bringing that family to the child that they do end up adopting yeah well and that's our story that's that we got into it when we did because of two boys that ended up being adopted by other people. And then our son Clark was actually not on the heart gallery, but his roommate at the group home was, and we were seeking after him. And it's just kind of cool how that, that totally happens over and over and over again. Yes. And I think that it's so, I think that it's so important to just be flexible with how the system can, can run, can run that way. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not intentional for it to run that way, but it, but it does and it works, you know? So I think that that's really cool that, that a child can, um, can can bring a family into the process and lead a family to the child that they end up adopting. So, yeah, that's super cool. And, you know, I think that it depends on which county you're in, but obviously once that child is placed in your home, there's a, a six month period um, that's mandatory. Minimum. Yes. Minimum. Right. I, I never want to. So, I mean, there's sometimes kids that, that need more than six months. Mm-hmm. Both and of so, ours need more than six months. Okay. And and I think that that's key. I, I'm not looking to push a kid on a family, mm-hmm. right? Um, I know my adoption specialists are not like that. Like, we want to give true quality service to the families. And so, if a family needs a little bit more time, um, I may even suggest that the family have a little bit more time to work out just some maybe emotional or behavioral issues within the home. 
Um, and so we, you know, we've done it after eight months. We've done it after 10 months. Um, I did an adoption that uh, I was the actual worker on, um, and I was in the home for over a year just providing services and was able to finally get that kid feeling like they were in a stable place and we could actually uh, go ahead and, and finalize the adoption. Well, and honestly, just coming from, I mean, I'm the type of person that I hit the ground running until I hit a wall. Um, and that's just my personality. So I, I need people to keep me grounded. I need someone to tell me like, you know, put the brakes on a little bit because, and I, I say that, um, because I'm, I'm thankful, you know, our adoption specialists, both of them, I was so impatient and I wanted the adoption to be done like tomorrow, you know, like mm-hmm. the next day. And they were like, no, 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 we're going to go at obviously the minimum pace, mm-hmm. but also just a healthy pace. And that was so, I was so thankful for that in the end, just that everyone had time because if you were doing adoptions the, the day after you got a kid, then I feel like, uh, to be frank, there would be a lot of failed adoptions. Yeah. Um, right. And, uh, while we're being frank, I'm going to, I'm going to change the subject a little bit here. So I think that neither of you are naive to the things that get said about DHS or just the system in general. Best system ever, right? (laughs) Quickest, most efficient, (laughs) (laughs) well-oiled machine. Yeah. But, you know, I have to say from the standpoint, and, you know, we've talked about project zero, which is it's, uh, it's specific to Arkansas and then there's another, nonprofit that's specific to Arkansas called The Call. And we have talked about that a lot on the podcast. Um, I'm There might be similar systems in other states, but specifically in Arkansas, I mean, the A in The Call is Arkansas. So pretty specific there. But th- those were the two nonprofits that were our experience when we first got into this. You know, we didn't know much about DCFS except for the stereotypes and what we had heard and the negativity and how slow things were and blah, blah, blah. But what I was absolutely amazed with is that both of those, the call and project zero always supported you guys always. And I, I mean, obviously there's going to be things that they don't like. There's going to be things that happen that nobody likes, but I, I absolutely loved how much they were in you guys's corner and mm-hmm. they were, they were supportive and they were saying, these people are rock stars. And I think that that was my first experience in looking at you guys with a different light. And I specifically wanted you guys to be on this episode. Um, just because I think that you guys are exemplary in this situation. We've had nothing but good experiences with both of you. And, I want to say that that's rare, but I don't think it is anymore. Um, and I wanted you guys to talk about that a little bit. You know, how, how do you guys strive to overcome those stereotypes aside from just doing your jobs, which is what you do? But like I said, you guys aren't naive. You know what, what is said and, and what do you guys do? Um, what are you guys forced to do to combat those things? Who that's a, that's a lot of question. questions. That is. <laughs> um, and, and I, I will say we do have a really good relationship both with the call and project zero and very appreciative of both of those organizations. Like I said, with project zero, if it wasn't for them, I mean, we would not have the events, the matching events to try to match kids with families um, to the same extent. And then, you know, I've worked with the call since I was, um, in the foster care unit and just have always had a good relationship with them. And, um, you know, Ann Maythaller, I, I consider her a friend in the sense that if, you know, had an issue with a foster family, maybe there was miscommunication on my part. Um, I could reach out to her and, um, she's always been 
supportive and tried to, you know, even be like a mediator and just help out. Um, as far as your other question is, is just how do we deal with just all the stuff that we deal with, with DCFS? Um, it's, it's difficult. Um, DCFS is, is, um, a hard job. Mm -hmm. I think adoptions is, um, and I'm going to be just a little prejudiced to my own experience, but, um, I think adoptions is one of the better units. Um, it is kind of like having two caseloads cause we've got to do all the stuff that a foster care worker would do. Um, we've got all those primary responsibilities, but in adoptions, we've got double the amount of paperwork that we have to do mm-hmm. to try to get adoption finalized. Um, I remember at one point I had, uh, over 90 kids on my caseload. And, you know, for myself, um, I always, and, and this is what I know about my adoption specialist as well, is that we don't look at that number. It's not a matter of, can we get that number lowered? Um, does it cause stress to have that many? Absolutely. Because, you know, this kid needs new placement or this kid needs something or, you know, something like that. Um, but it was always about the quality. Can we, can we get a child in the right family, support that family and then do an adoption so that that child never has to know what the foster care system's ever like again. And, um, that is, that is what I've always strived to do. And I know that my adoption specialist, um, cause I, I haven't really had to train them. Um, uh, they were, they came in with that type of heart. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I trained them on what to do in adoptions, but they've always been thinking about like putting themselves in the kid's shoe. Like, how can we make this work? What's the best way we can do this? And I feel like when we have that mindset, it, it's still a stressful. I mean, we still have terrible days, uh, really, really hard days, but it, it reminds us that we are doing this not for ourselves, but we're doing this kind of like with our foster families or our adoptive families. It's not about us. It's about these kids. How can we get these kids, um, to have permanency, to have, uh, a family that won't back out on them? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, that's the way that I've always dealt with it. And that's the way that I know my adoption specialists deal with it too. You know, and, and I want to point out a couple of things cause you know, you were saying that you put the, you know, it's not about you and that's how you think of it. And I think that a nice side effect, if not your original intention is, is uh family retention. Did I say, I meant if not your original intention is family retention. And I say that, I mean, like I said, Margot worked with our family specifically for just like, I mean, a month. I'm, I'm being serious. Like it was just a month. We've actually never worked directly with you in our adoption experience, but both of you have fought for our family, which was an out of area. It wasn't even in your area adoption. And that was not, that wasn't for your caseload. That wasn't right. for you guys. It wasn't for your numbers. It wasn't for any of that. It was because it was the, the right thing to do. And that's amazing. So, I mean, what, where does your heart have to be where that is just your goal, no matter what? That's, that's awesome. I mean, well, thank you. I mean, that's just, that is what we want to do. We want to be 
um, of support to our, to our kids and to our families. Um, you know, we, we also have to provide post adoption services. Um, and so, and that's even for, um, families that have adopted privately. And so we always want to be of service to them, to, to the families, to try to keep kids within their families and that they don't come back into foster care. Yeah. That's amazing. So what is, what's your take on all of that, Margo? Something that I really want society in general to know, um, is that whenever you, whenever you share a negative experience about a caseworker or about a experience that you had in the foster care system, um, I think that it's important that you ask yourself the purpose of sharing that experience. Um, And I I think that it's fine to go to your friends and family and, you know, your support system for support and encouragement and to vent that that's all very important and that's all healthy. But a lot of the time, something that we see is families who are upset with a decision that DHS made, so they bash DHS. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening when a family bashes DHS publicly and says, you know, how the foster care system wronged them and didn't let them adopt the kids they wanted to adopt or they denied them for no reason or, you know, whatever their um, complaint is, is that when you are, when you, when you publicly say those things in such a negative way about the system, you're deterring people from wanting to become foster parents and adoptive parents. And at the end of the day, that makes our job harder, but that's not really what matters. At the end of the day, what you're, what you're doing is you are creating less homes for children in the foster care system. Absolutely. And that seems really contradictory to, you know, your whole reason for wanting to, you know, that seems really contradictory to your motive for being upset that you couldn't adopt you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that if you are upset about a situation, then definitely go through the proper channels, um, you know, get support from your friends, vent about it, but don't, don't lie on social media about the reason that you were denied or whatever happened. Um, because we see that and we don't comment back on people's posts, you know, anytime the news or anybody shares a story about how we need foster homes, it's inevitable that people comment and say, oh, well, they wronged me because they denied me for no reason. When, you know, we see those comments and we know that you didn't get denied for no reason, but we're going to protect your confidentiality anyway. And we're going to keep our mouth shut and we're not going to say anything, you know, and we're not going to, we can't defend the department and we're not going to because that's, that's not, you know, what we're setting out to do. We're not setting out to ruin anybody's reputation or anything like that. Um, But, but I just think that it's important that you consider that the people that you're doing harm to are the children who um, who are just looking for a home. So when you when you when for you, those kids that are going to be sitting up at the office overnight right. because there's not a foster home for, or a foster bed for them to go to. Right, and I mean, like, yeah, that's an inconvenience for a DHS worker that has to stay there overnight, but that is life ruining for a child who's having to stay there overnight. So I just think that that's important that families really consider that before you publicly, you know, declare your 
problem with everything that DHS did wrong and every way that we wronged you. Yeah. But I, I think that your heart behind that answer really speaks volume for um, for just your character. And, and I know that you would have said the same thing, Richie, but I think that, um, I don't know, just hearing you guys talk and hearing you guys be so child focused and minded is, is just, it's very, it's, uh, I feel very honored to, to hear you guys talk about this. So thank you guys for your hearts and thank you for all the hard work that you do because, oh my gosh, I would not want that job. So you guys are awesome. Um, so Richie, do you have like at last count how many kids in this area were post TPR available for adoption waiting? 70 to a hundred that are waiting kids that we are actively recruiting adoptive homes for. That's a lot. That's a lot. For like a yeah. small, like square mile. I mean, overall that's, that's a lot. It is. Yeah. I, I think something that has always been really amazing to see though, is no matter how high the caseloads are, no matter how many waiting children there are, I have seen every single uh, one of my co-workers in the adoption unit celebrate for each victory. I've seen every, like, you can have a hundred kids that you are, you know, looking to find a, looking to find a home for, that you're recruiting a home for, and they still get so excited and their day is made over getting that one child into their, into their, you know, forever home. Yeah. And so I think that it's, I think that it's, I think that's really wonderful and I, I want to express that, that that we get to celebrate that because of people like you, Alex, and people like, you know, any of the other adoptive moms and, you know, parents who are listening to this. We celebrate because of, we get to celebrate because of you. We get to celebrate because of your decision. And, and that, that's just, that's awesome. You know, we get to be a team together and y'all make our day when we, when you get to have your family completed. We we love to see that just as much as you guys love to have it happen mm -hmm. to y'all and to your family. Yeah, it's true. That's so neat. So, okay, before we get into like our closing questions, we did have a Facebook question. So um, let's see here. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Um, so what do you guys have to say or what, is, what are some advice that you have for adoptive families that have teens in their home who, who want to be adopted, quote, want to be adopted, but then they continue close contact with biological parents via Facebook or something like that, even though their rights have been terminated. So I think that it's really important that anybody who is adopting, whether it be through the foster care system or through private adoption or internationally, that you remember that your gain is happening because of a loss that that child had to experience mm -hmm. um and i think that the magnitude of that is is something that that we can't we can't let it get lost on us um so a child can have complex feelings about the fact that they love their foster parents or their adoptive parents and also still love their bio mom. Mm -hmm. 
and also still, you know, miss their bio dad. And maybe those bio parents, maybe those bio parents really hurt them. Maybe the maltreatment was substantial. Maybe they were neglected. But that child is still allowed to feel a connection with the person that that gave them life and that raised them for many years or didn't raise them. Um, but I, you know, our, as humans, our hearts are so big that we are able to love so many people. And so I think that we need to allow the children that are being adopted through foster care to, to feel that too. That we, I think that it's important that we encourage them, um, that it's okay to miss your bio mom. I know that you are able to love your bio mom and also love me, um, you know, as your adoptive mom. Um, now, I think that there are circumstances where maybe the safety of the child comes into comes into jeopardy with with certain contact like that. Um, I think that that needs to be handled on a case by case basis, you know, with therapeutic intervention if possible, or you know, with the um, you know with the caseworker or um, you know, another professional who, who knows the whole situation in the background of the story. Um, so that statement's, you know, not, that's a, that's a general statement. Um, but generally speaking, um, generally speaking, I think that, that if a child, that if a child, um, you know, an, an older youth of a teenager still loves their bio parents and still wants to have that contact, then, then that's okay. That's, you know, that's more, that, that's okay. The child has room in their heart to, to love multiple people. It's not a competition. Yeah. I think it's, I think Margo's right. It's, it's case by case situation. Um, there's a reason why parental rights were terminated. Uh, the child could not return safely for whatever reasons. The safety factors that brought the child into care were not remedied. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you got to be careful. Um, I think that organized contact would be the more appropriate way. Maybe that's through letters. Um, maybe it's through... Supervised you know, visits. Uh, or even just phone calls, you know, randomly. Um, now, I wouldn't go out and just start doing those things. Um, if you know for a fact that the parents are not in a good place and they're still maybe using drugs or whatever it may be, then, you know, you don't want to have that child because that could be a trigger for the child. Mm -hmm. So you don't want that child to start having that contact and um, then regress in your home. Um, I think that, that you need to just kind of weigh it out. Now I have a family who adopted a teenage, um, a teenager and the kid, you know, didn't even want to change his name. Didn't want to change his last name. And the family was supportive of it. Great family. Love the family. Um, and mom is still having contact with the son. Mom still has her issues, um, quite a bit and, um, has 
come around to some of the teenagers, uh, sporting events and stuff. And the teenager and the mom still have contact via telephone, social media, stuff like that. And so it's caused turmoil in the family, but the family also realizes that even though the child does better when he doesn't talk to mom, um, like personally, he, he's not getting away from her either. Mm -hmm. And if he, um, if they force it, then he may run to her. And so, um, they have tried to build away a relationship with the mom that, you know, they're not calling the cops every time she shows up to, um, you know, one of his sporting events or something like that. Cause it's not helping him either right. at that point. So they, you know, they really try to, to be in control of what that contact looks like. And I think that it's still difficult for them. And, um, you know, I talk to them frequently and just, you know, offer support. There's nothing I can do at this point, just really kind of being a, a listening ear for them, but allowing them to do that or allowing their son to do that. Um, I think is the best scenario for right now. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's a good answer for both of you guys. Um, so if you guys are ready, we can kind of do some like lightning around closing questions. Okay. You guys good with that? Yes. So first of all, why, why this route with adoption? You know, there's like the, they're like big three choices, international, private or foster care. Why this one? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know to be honest with you. Um, not that it's a competition, but I mean, you guys yeah. obviously have a very specific passion for this. So, um, um, so one private adoptions you need to have, you need to be a licensed social worker. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then two, I, I honestly didn't even know DHS did adoptions when I, I was just kind of naive and didn't know anything. And, and, um, in fact, I remember when I was in my new worker training, uh, with, one of our local adoption specialists at the time, she's not with us anymore. Um, I was just talking to her and she asked her what, you know, she was going to be doing. And she said adoptions. And I was like, I was like dumbfounded. I was just like, wait, you can be an adoption specialist in DHS. Like I want to do that. And so, um, you know, obviously I told my story, but in about a year's time, that's what I ended up doing. Um, and so I, I like the fact that we are able to um, help kids that are in their worst situations. Mm. International adoptions, they are in tough situations too, right? Um, maybe even sometimes worse just because of, you know, I've heard some of the stories of some of the kids in these third world countries and where there's, you know, um, a lot of war and stuff like that. Um, but it, these kids are local. These yeah. kids are in our community that are dealing with really difficult situations. So, and the other thing too was when I was in high school and I wanted to adopt, I always wanted to adopt in the States. Because a lot of people adopt outside of the states, do international adoptions and stuff. And I always said that uh, there was kids here within the states. I didn't even really know if it was in my community. Um, I was oblivious to anyone in my school that was in foster care. I didn't know anyone that was really adopted or anything. Um, but I just knew that there was kids here 
in the United States, kind of in my back door, um, or backyard that, that needed to be adopted. And so, um, I guess that's kind of the reason why I went down this road. Yeah. And I like, that's a good, that's a good, uh, like journey story. So Margo, why, um, why should families choose? Um, I think that whether you adopt through, you know, a private agency or you adopt through the foster care system or you adopt internationally or, you know, no matter how you adopt, I don't think that there's a wrong way to go with it. Um, I think for me personally, the reason that, um, that it's so important to adopt from the foster care system kind of goes along with what Richie was saying that it's a need that you, you can ignore that need, but once you know that that need exists right here in your own community, you can no longer ignore it. Mm. Once you're aware that there are kids who are going to school with your kids that are, you know, moving from foster home to foster home or who don't have, um, you know, uh, maybe they're going back to a group home at the end of the day or, you know, maybe they're at a, a, you know, they're missing from school for a while because they've been in and out of residential treatment facilities because of, you know, the, the trauma that sometimes comes about with the experiences in the foster care system. Once you realize that those are all kids that, look like your kids. Mm -hmm. Those are all kids who go to your church, who go to your kids' school, who are in your communities. You can't, you can't ignore that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I think that once you, once you know about, you know, once you know how great that need is in your own community, um, it's, it's our responsibility as, humans to to help each other and to step up and and be there for the children in our community and i always i really always say that community support is key to breaking the cycle Mm. um and so i think that if you have the ability to play that role for a child that you have the ability to to help break the cycle there, to help end a cycle of, you know, generations of, of abuse and neglect and children in and out of the system. If you have, if you feel that you have that calling and you have that strength that you can be somebody to, to give that child stability where they might not have ever had it before, um, then, then go for it. Then we, we want you, you know? Um, so I think that once you know, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Well, and on a completely practical sense, I mean, obviously international adoptions and private adoptions can get pretty expensive and adopting through foster care is free. So yeah, it is. That's definitely, that's a pretty exciting thing too. So definitely that's a big aspect of it, of it as well that I think, um, people don't realize is, um, you know, earlier I was talking about how whenever the news, you know, different news stations share stories of adopting through foster care. Another, you know, top comment that we inevitably see is people saying, oh, well, if they didn't make it so expensive. <laughs> and I, and again, you know, you'll never see me comment back on anything. But, but in my head, I'm thinking, no, if you adopt through foster care, you don't have to, you don't have to pay. I mean, you need to buy your own fire extinguisher and, you know, different things like that to meet <laughs> licensing standards. Right. But... You know, and you need to be able to, you know, provide that child with clothing and you need to be able to, you know, provide for that child's basic needs. But 
generally speaking, there's not that, you know, $40,000 or whatever, um, you know, upfront fee that you would have to pay with if you went other routes and adopting. Right. There's no legal fees or anything like that. Correct. No, we subsidize those. Yeah. Yeah, DHS pays the attorney. Like, all, ev- everything goes through the juvenile court system, and it's at no cost. The adoption is at no cost to the adoptive family. You don't have to pay for your home study, which home studies can be like $1,500. None of that. Yeah. We cover all that. Well, and you guys, they even reimburse for your, like, CPR training. I mean, come on. True. <laughs> okay, so what do each of you wish that someone had told you at the beginning of uh, of this journey of working at DCA? DCFS. So I'm going to, if it's okay with you, kind of elaborate on that to say that something that I wish people told me at the beginning that I also think applies to adoptive parents at the beginning of their journey. Yeah, go for it, man. So no matter how educated you are in, you know, in in trauma or child needs or social work or welfare or anything of that nature, or no matter how knowledgeable you are about parenting, um, no matter how prepared that you feel that you are, um, your mental health is still something that you have to take into consideration. Um, and so I wish that I would have, I wish that I would have realized, um, I wish that I would have realized at the beginning of, um, coming to work for DCFS is that when you, when you have a role of, you know, um, being a family service worker or an adoption specialist or an adoptive parent, you are expected to give a lot of yourself emotionally to somebody who, who needs that. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you're caught up in the hustle and bustle of giving yourself emotionally so hard to these kids so often that you you might not take your mental health into consideration to the extent that you need to. And so I think that there's kind of a thought that, oh, well, I'm the family service worker or I'm the adoption specialist or oh, I'm the adoptive parent. I didn't go through the trauma. The child is the one who experienced this, you know, this trauma. They're the ones that need the therapy. But in order to be able to give yourself to that child for long term, you have to you have to be mentally healthy in yourself. So I just I encourage anybody who is who is thinking about working in this field or thinking about being an adoptive parent or anything involving working with um with this population um that you there there's no shame in in going to counseling. There's no shame in seeking resources for your own mental health. In fact, you are not going to be able to perform to the best of your ability if you act like your mental health is is some rock solid thing that can't be shattered. Um, because when you're when you're crying with these children, when you are holding these children, when these children are you know yelling at you and telling you that they hate you, or you know when you're having to um, you know pick that child up from visitation and watch them break down, all of those things will impact your will impact your mental health. Mm-hmm. So in order to be the best most stable advocate for that child that you can be, 
you have to take care of you. I mean, we've all heard the phrase, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think that that is just so true. And I think that we all, anybody who's involved with this population needs to, owes it to themselves and owes it to the children that they're serving to be able to be as stable as, as possible. Uh, yeah, I so love true. that answer. And that's something I wish I had known early on too, is I waited over a year before I got into counseling. And now that's like my mantra. I've said it on this podcast before. If you're an adoptive fam- if you're an adoptive mom, foster mom, any of that, you need to be in counseling. Like no yes. excuses. No. Yes. And no, I agree. even if it's just because you go and you can vent to somebody that's not, you know, your husband or that's not your, you know, your best friend, like just to vent to somebody or just to be able to have somebody tell you, hey, you're doing a good job or hey, I see you working hard that maybe isn't as personally invested in the situation Mm -hmm. as your support system typically would be. That can be such a relief. That can that can take such a, a heavy weight off of you. Um, and yeah, I mean, counseling or you know, counseling or if you need to be on an antidepressant or something in that you know, anything that helps promote your your emotional well being and your mental health is worth is worth considering and it's worth doing. Yeah, talk I, to a doctor mm-hmm. about it. True, definitely. So what about you, Richie? What do you wish someone had told you at the beginning of this DCFS journey? Um, the emphasis on keeping siblings together. Mm. Uh, specifically, I, I had this case where um, I had two siblings and, and they're each in different homes. And, um, you know, I, I look back and, and I didn't fight to try to get them adopted together or get them placed together. And I mean, they're going to be well taken care of. They're going to be just fine. They're, I'm not worried about safety concerns or anything like that. Um, but I just didn't know. I, I looked at it from a new person, from a, the lens of, you know what? That kid is doing so good in that home and this kid's doing so good in their home. We shouldn't mess that up. Like they, they've got good homes versus what research says is that siblings need to be placed together when they're in out of home placements because especially when they're adopted, because that is possibly their only kinship to each other. And, and when they become teenagers, they are going to wonder where their true biological family is. And the research shows that if they are with um, their siblings, then they don't look for, family as much. They don't, there, there's less runaways. Um, they do better in school. They do better, um, in, in post high school education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just there's overwhelming stats about that stuff. And so I wish I knew that more. So I could have, I guess, fought for my kids, my siblings more. Yeah. Um, and that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I think that that's a good point that um, that I don't think that it, I wasn't aware of that either. Initially coming to work for DHS is that sibling bonds are so are so important because children 
children use that sibling bond as part of their identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, just at the very beginning of this of this podcast, you know, when you asked me to tell you about myself, I told you about all my brothers and sisters. I mean, sibling bonds are part of our identity. So I agree with Richie when it is possible to keep siblings together, then then that's that's a lifelong that's a lifelong bond that that we should encourage and promote. And that bond is longer than the adoptive parent child bond. Definitely. Okay, so what is something that each of you ha- wish you had done differently? And it can't be the same one, would you? <laughs> you can go first. So Richie and I were talking about this one last week whenever we were um, reading over the questions. So I think that for me, something that I have learned to cope with over the last um, several years that I've been with DHS is that I would all like I would always think to myself, Oh, I should have done that, or I should have done this, or oh, I didn't do that, or oh, I wish I would have done it that way. And so I've had to like work really hard to to be content with with where I'm at now, as far as my um, my role in the department, and as far as the the things that I've helped achieve for families in the department. So. For me personally, I I don't know that there is anything that I would change because when I look at when I look at where I am now and the kids who I have a relationship with still that I was the caseworker for four years ago, I feel like if I would have done something differently, I might not have that. Or, you know, the kids who I don't have a relationship anymore because I helped them get adopted, so they don't need me anymore, and I love that, you know? So I think that there's, for me, I I think that I'm content with with how I've done things so far. And I I hope that nobody listening to this thinks like, oh, well, you messed up our blah, blah, blah. So, you know, (laughs) if I I didn't return your call soon enough or something, I'm really sorry. But, but, you know, as far as, as the big picture goes, I'm... I'm I'm happy with with the the goals that I've helped kids achieve and that I've helped families achieve. Yeah. You're a pretty quick call returner, so you're oh, good there. Thank you. <laughs> what about you, Richie? Um for myself it's more so um just kind of more of like a system thing. Uh I I loved working with families. Uh, even though I love doing adoptions, I really did enjoy working my, the one year that I worked in foster care and working with families. Um, I wish I would have had more time to give to my families. Um, because I felt like there are times when families just needed, um, their hand held or taken to, you know, uh, an AA meeting or something like that. And you're putting out fires here and you're putting out fires there and you just, you didn't have that time. And, um, I, I just, that really bothered me that first year mm. really bad. Um, I actually lost a lot of sleep because I would just wake up and I would think about these families, and it, 
it was a big struggle. Um, and so I just, if I could do it over again, and I don't know if, if I could do it over again, I mean, I would still be in the same situation. I was working 12 hours a day, five days a week. There was, there wasn't any other time I could give, but if I could just do it over again, it would be, I don't know, try harder with those families. <laughs> um, because I, even though I'm in adoptions, I, I'm so big on reunification. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see our caseloads in adoption go down, not because that means that we don't have anything to do and it's less stress for us, but because that means that we're, we are able to reunify families. And I want that. I want that so badly for our kids. Um, because that's what they need. They need, um, if, if there's no safety factors, they need to be with their biological families. And so I just wish that I, I could have, I don't know, done better, tried harder, done something to get those kids back with their uh, biological families. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a, that's a side that a lot of us adoptive families don't see very often. So it's a good perspective. Um, Okay. So what do you wish that people understood or better understood about what you guys do? I wish that people understood that we don't, we as individual workers aren't just making up um, different rules to make um, the families, whether that be the biological families or the adoptive families or the foster families, we're not just making up rules to make their um, experience with DHS difficult. Um, we have to abide by a, we have to abide by policy. We have to abide by the law. We have to abide by licensing standards that, um, sometimes do place us in certain ethical dilemmas, um, and put us in tough situations, um, where we, where we have to make tough choices. Um, but, um, I, I think that it would be, it would be really beneficial if people could, if people could understand that we, that we do care and that we make our decisions, like I said, based off of policy, but also based off of, you know, research-based practice and based off of, you know, education and based off of hundreds and hundreds of hours of continuing education that we receive, you know, through working with DHS. Um, and so I think that it would, it would be really nice if families could recognize that we, we know that this is an emotional situation a lot of the time, but we can't just make decisions strictly based off of emotion. We have to make um, rational decisions that abide by policy, that abide by the law, that um, that promote the long-term well-being of children and families. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's a good thing to remember for anyone who's a, ever been frustrated with DC or DHS in general. What about you? So, for for adoption specialists, the hardest part of our job is finding the right family for a child. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, um, we, 
you know, we have to read a lot of home studies and we know our kids, but we don't know the families. And so I would want families to realize that just because you were not selected for a specific child that you saw on project zero or that, you know, we called you about cause you were on a matching list or that you went to a matching event, um, to, and, and got to know this kid a little bit. It's not because of you that we, that you weren't selected. It's because we're trying to find the best fit family for this child. And so it could be something. Some kids need to be the youngest kid in the home, right? Some mm-hmm. kids need to be the oldest. <coughs> Excuse me. And so there's different things, um, that are in play. I will tell you the, the times that my adoption specialist, um, including myself, we get the most emotional is when we have placed a kid or a sibling group into a family and it didn't work out. Mm. It, the, it didn't finalize. Luckily, we put a lot of parameters in place to try to, to not have that happen. Uh, but there are times when it does and, and it is the most heart wrenching to see a child who the family has told them that they're going to be in that home forever. And that is why we have a six month trial period. We understand that. But our goal is that when by doing disclosure and doing, you know, pre-adoptive visits and all this stuff that we can really make sure that that once a child is placed in that home, that that family um, and that child will follow through to adoption. And when it doesn't, and that kid is crying their eyes out because it's another failed, uh, um, parent figure in their life, um, that, that has failed them, that won't commit to them. Uh, I mean, you can just see the hurt and, um, just the pain that they are dealing with and how they just lose trust in adults. Um, and, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It is so heartbreaking. Um, you know, I've had a kid that was in a home for a year and it didn't work out. Um, he's got a lot of issues. And so I don't blame, you know, I don't always want to say that I'm blaming the families. Um, cause I understand, but from the standpoint of the child, man, it weighs I cried. Yeah, yeah, I cried, you know, and, um, I know my adoption specialists have, have all dealt with it and, and it is so hard. And so that's why it is the hardest part of our job is to try to find that right family. Mm-hmm. We may have five families, <coughs> excuse me, that, um, are, are all good on paper and we may meet them and, and, you know, go out, do a home visit with them just to see. And they're all still great. And we try to find what is best. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult. It is so, so difficult. And so if a family isn't selected, it's not anything against them. It's just, we are trying to find the best fit, the best match that we can for the family and for the child. And man, that it's hard. It yeah. is really, really difficult. And I mean, as an adoptive parent, hindsight on that, you know, looking back on all of the, the kids that we didn't end up, end up adopting, 
those were frustrating. We wanted it so badly to work out, but now looking back, that was the best decision. And like I said, hindsight, it's easy to trust you guys. And so I think that for those of you listening, you know, hear him when he says that, that, that he means it. And even though it doesn't feel like that, even though it's frustrating and you just want something to happen, it's the truth. Those decisions are made for a reason. So in what, and I, what I mean by this, when I say, in what ways can your department help adoptive families? Richie, you said something earlier about, you know, that's part of your job is post-adoptive services. So in what ways can, what, what are those post-adoptive services? How can you help people who have already adopted um, and are maybe drowning, maybe just need a little help here and there? Um, so if a, if a child has subsidy, um, and it might be Medicaid subsidy where they get to keep their Medicaid till age 18, one of the easiest ones is there's always going to be a glitch within the Medicaid system where <laughs> their Medicaid may turn off. Um, and the funny thing is, is always happen, it always happens like on a weekend, uh, late at night when you need to get a medication and you're at the pharmacy and the pharmacist says, I'm sorry, that child doesn't have Medicaid anymore, right? <laughs> um, instead of, instead of calling, Medicaid and, and cause, you know, we understand it, it can take a long time to get, you know, someone that can respond and whatnot. Um, if you just email your adoption specialist, email me, um, we can, uh, send that off to Little Rock and usually get it fixed within a day. That's kind of the simplest one. Um, some of the other ones, you know, if you need a counselor, uh, we can kind of point you in the right direction of a counselor. Um, for things that are more serious, like uh, an acute mental health behavioral stay, uh, then, you know, we can kind of point you in that direction. If you need subacute for your child, which is, you know, more long term, uh, anywhere from maybe six to 10 months, uh, we know the facilities across the state that handle specific situation specific mm-hmm. behaviors if it's sexual if it's aggressive if it's um kind of like rad situations reactive attachment disorder situations we know those facilities that can help out with those or specialize in those and so we can kind of point the family in those directions the reason why i say point in the directions is because we no longer have custody of the child the adoptive family does mm-hmm. and so we can't do the paperwork we can't do the referral we can't transport the child there um but we can help we can provide those services um one of the other things that that we can do is schedule an uh interdivisional staffing which is done in Little Rock. It's done in um, central office and it has kind of all the big wigs within different divisions. That's why it's called interdivisional, uh, but different divisions within DHS. So usually our mental health director for DCFS is there. Um, we get child psychologists or child psychiatrists actually from um, UAMS that are there and, um, uh, beacon options, which is kind of the sort of, uh, assessment sort of piece for Medicaid kind of, um, and, and they'll be there. And so we get, uh, our director of education for, uh, DCFS. So it's this big round table of people and we just present this case, um, and the adoptive parents are a part of it. And we as a, as a group try to say, you know what, maybe this, situation or, or this service can be best fit for that family. And we just try to talk to them and, and help them out and try to 
resolve the issue that that's at hand because um you know i've i've been a part of those and we've had the psychiatrist um look at the child's medication go you know this is a lot of medication for this kid mm-hmm. and we pull you know they're right there and so they can pull up the kids um uh medication history and go it looks like they're just the previous psychiatrists were trying to just figure out what the right medication was. Let's do this. Let's try this and go down that route. Or, you know what, let's get a full like psychological assessment on the child. And so, you know, they'll, they'll point us in that direction um, just to try to help out. And so we can do a lot of those services and, and, you know, it doesn't consist of us doing home visits anymore or anything like that. It's really us trying to provide as much, assistance to the family to prevent the child coming back into foster care because that is the absolute last thing we want to do and so we just want to try to make that family whole and strong again awesome so last thing and if you guys could do it in like like what is um what's like your one sentence piece of advice or encouragement to adoptive families allow yourself to change your mind be open to the possibility of going into this, having expectations, and then having those expectations completely crushed, but getting something better, something else, something that you didn't know that you that you wanted, that you needed, and that makes your family whole. I like it. What about you, Richie? Don't sacrifice your family to try to adopt a child. And what I mean by that is your family, you, you and your spouse still need time away for each other. You need, um, to be able to do a a date night, date weekend, maybe a, a week long, you know, vacation for the two of you because you guys are a united front for your family. And just because you bring in a foster child into your home, um, you still need that. It, it's healthy to do that. I've seen over and over and over families that stop doing those type of things. And they, you know, anytime you stop doing those things, you are going to create some type of division within your own marriage. And if your marriage is, has a lot of cracks in it, the kids can see that. Mm-hmm. And so, Make sure that you are setting time aside to to have that healthy marriage. Ah, that's such a good one. Yeah. I kind of want to change my answer now. <laughs> Utilize your support system. Definitely. Utilize, that's a, no, that's a good one. Utilize your support system. And allow people to allow people to help you. Because recognize that people love to help other people. So if somebody offers to bring you dinner... Or if somebody offers to babysit or if somebody, you know, anything in any way that provides support to you, take them up on that. Mm-hmm. Neither yeah. one of those were one sentence from either one of us. I know. I gave two paragraphs. No, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> I, that was good. Just cut it and use what you want to use. <laughs> no cutting necessary. You guys are great. I'm so thankful that you took the time to sit down with me. And I will link to any uh, any links that we talked about or notes or books or anything like that. And I'll link to you guys' social media accounts so you can put faces to name. Right? Cool. Sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey and he is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.